Of your Bibles, please, if you would, to Matthew. We'll be looking, first of all, at Matthew chapter 9, and then we'll go over and take a peek at Mark chapter 6. Our lesson this morning is entitled Binding Blindness, because now we come to two events that demonstrate for us the nature of true blindness. There are two types of blindness, of course. There is physical blindness, which is a terrible handicap that prevents a person from visually seeing anything. Um, I know, I remember years ago, we actually had a woman in the Bible study who was blind. We don't see it too much, but back in Christ's day and in third world countries, there still is a lot of blindness. But there is a far worse type of blindness, which happens to many more people than physical blindness, and it is the tragic spiritual blindness that prevents a person from seeing the true person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Physical blindness may only keep a person in darkness during this temporary earthly life, but spiritual blindness keeps a person in darkness how long? Forever. Forever and ever throughout all eternity. In the two events that we come to in this study now, we find two blind men who were given their sight both physically and spiritually because their faith in Christ saved their souls as well as their eyesight. But in the second situation that we're going to look at this morning, we find the people of Nazareth willfully blind to the messiahship of their own hometown boy, Jesus. And therefore, their blindness binds them from receiving spiritual sight. Their unbelief blinds them from the light of truth and thus forever to darkness. All right, so let, our outline is very simple. We're going to be looking at Matthew 9, verses 27 to 34, physical blindness removed. And then when we flip over to Mark, we're going to be looking at spiritual blindness remains. All right, let's begin by looking at physical blindness removed. And for this, I will read Matthew 9, verses 27 to 34. It says, and when Jesus departed thence, where did he depart from? Where have we just been? In Jairus' home. All right, so when he departed from Jairus' home, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, now that speaks of he just left Jairus' house and he goes over to whose house do you think? He's in Capernaum. Where did he usually stay when he was in Capernaum? Peter's house. So the, the most commentators say that this is probably Peter's house. So he goes from Jairus's house, walks over to Peter's house. When he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. They came into the house also. And Jesus saith unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, He was never so seen in Israel. It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, here they go again, 
He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. All right, this miracle that we have, first of all, of the healing of these two blind men, interestingly, is only found in the Gospel of Matthew, not in any of the other Gospel accounts. Um, when Jesus left Jairus' home, we find that he was no sooner out the door when two blind men began to follow him, crying out very loudly, Thou, son of David, have mercy on us. This tells us that there was a crowd of people outside of the house when he raised Jairus' little daughter from the dead. Remember, he sent the mourners and the musicians outside the house, and there had been a big crowd following him, but he had everybody stay outside and only took in Mr. and Mrs. Jairus and the three inner disciples, James, Peter, and John. But obviously, there was still a big crowd outside the house waiting. And among that crowd were these two blind men. Jesus healed, did you realize this? He healed more cases of blindness than any other disease or physical problem, according to the gospel records. He healed more blind men than any other, at least from what we can tell. Now, it says he healed many lepers and many this and many that, but there's more recorded cases of him healing blindness than anything else. Blindness, and that's interesting too, isn't it? In light of spiritual blindness, how important it is. Blindness was very common back in the Lord's day. As it is, as I said before, it's, it's rather common in underdeveloped countries today where unsanitary uh, conditions, poor living conditions exist. Where there's blowing sand, for example. I remember when we were in Egypt and we um, saw some nomads and stopped alongside of the road and these little children ran up to us. And I could not believe the sand on their faces. Sand in all their eyelashes, just caked on, just all over. And blowing sand causes a lot of blindness. Also um, malnutrition, excessive heat, gonorrhea, Infectious organisms contribute, you know, frequently to physical blindness. Although these two men here couldn't see, yet they could hear. And they obviously had heard reports from others as to the mighty works of Jesus. Perhaps they had even been among the multitudes who had heard him teach at one time or another. Maybe they had even been there not too far away when, they, when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. None, nonetheless, they had heard of him. They had obviously heard of him, whether by the testimony of other people or by his own direct words. And they had gained enough faith in what they heard to find their way to him, which would not be easy. Why? Because they were blind. And there was a big crowd, and they, and they were blind. They couldn't see. The title that they used for Jesus was what? Son of David, which was one of the most common Jewish titles for the Messiah. It was a royal title for the Messiah because it spoke of his, his uh, direct lineage from King David. It denoted the Messiah's right to reign over the coming kingdom of God, which was promised to his servant David. Now, these two guys who couldn't see a thing, yet we find that they had an inner sight that most people of Israel did not have. They not only saw Jesus to be the long-awaited deliverer of Israel, but they saw their own unworthiness, you know, something to which the esteemed religious rulers of that day were totally blind. They not only saw him as the son of David, the promised 
deliverer, the Messiah, but they saw their own unworthiness. When they pleaded to Christ to have mercy on them, they were admitting their own spiritual poverty. They were admitting their own unworthiness. They knew they were undeserving of his help, but they also understood something of his mercy, didn't they? They sought blessing under the umbrella of mercy, and that's the only proper way to ask for the Lord's blessing. So they appealed to him as the Messiah deliverer, and they also appealed to him as the merciful one. They didn't plead for justice, did they? They pled for mercy, and I wanted to read something uh, about that. In illustrating the wisdom of the blind men in praying for mercy, Joseph Parker said, They did not say, be just to us, O son of David. And then Parker goes on to tell us what the blind men might have said if they were pleading for Christ to be just, which sounds like our rights emphasis today. You know, people claiming we want our rights. He says, this is what uh, Joseph Parker says. He says, the blind men might have said, we have heard that you have cured a leper. Now be impartial in your administration of affairs of the universe and deal with an equal hand. If you have cured one man, you ought to cure another. We will charge you with partiality if you do not cure us as you have cured the leper and raised the ruler's dead child and healed the woman who touched the hem of your garment. Be just to us. We have our rights. (laughs) That plea for Christ to be just surely sounds like the rights emphasis of our day. But rights, you know, declaring or claiming your rights, he says, is the wrong emphasis. Rights is the opposite of mercy. Rights says the privilege and blessing is due me. It's my right. You know, I deserve it. The rights emphasis of our day is an arrogance emphasis. It will never get anywhere with God. Furthermore, the rights emphasis ignores responsibilities. And our day needs a lot more emphasis on responsibilities than we are giving it. Focusing on our rights does not make men better in character. But focusing on responsibilities will. I thought that was so true. I wanted to share that with you. But we sure do hear a lot of that, don't we? You hear people saying, I have my rights. Give me my rights. But you hear them saying... I have my responsibilities. I should do my responsibilities. (laughs) No, you don't hear that. All right. So they said, uh, like the penitent sinner, they said, God, you know, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that was the right thing to do. It's kind of interesting to realize that Jesus didn't stop immediately. When these two blind men approach him, he keeps walking. He didn't stop immediately and turn around and heal these two men. Almost looks kind of callous here. You know, instead, he keeps on walking back to the house, probably Peter's, where he stayed when he was in Capernaum. And by the, by the way, when you open your house to Christ, as Peter did, do you receive blessings? Open your home to Jesus Christ if you haven't already. Be hospitable in the name of the Lord Jesus. Dedicate your home to the Lord Jesus. We find that Peter was really blessed in the fact that he opened his home to Jesus. Not only was his own mother-in-law healed, but remember that's where the paralytic was healed, the man who was lowered through the roof of his house. And now we're going to find that 
two blind men were actually healed in his home. So it's a good thing when you open your home to Jesus Christ. But anyway, back to, to Jesus, you know, he just kept walking. He And these men uh, were crying, and this is revealed in the Greek. They kept on crying, and they kept on saying... Um, whatever they said, you know, uh, son, yeah, have mercy, son of David, have. And they said it loudly. The emphasis, again, is given, uh, uh, the word is krazo, and it means loud. They were loud, and they were. it was given in the continuous tense. So they kept on crying, and they kept on saying over and over again. There was a big crowd, you know, there. So they had to persist, and they had to keep shoving. And this would be hard, because they're blind, remember? So, the, uh, But he didn't turn around. That didn't stop them. They kept persisting in their, in their shouting after him, and they continued to follow him. And he was. what do you think he was doing here? As he always does, he was testing their faith. And we notice, too, something interesting. Jesus doesn't always work the same with everybody. You can't put him in a box the way he works with people. He works different in different situations. He knows the, the people. We don't know the hearts, but he knew, and he knew that they needed to be tested, perhaps, in this particular way, that their persistence needed to be tested. But whatever, we know he doesn't do things without reason. But he was, he was testing their faith, and he was proving their sincerity. And when they, um, when they reached the house, they, they were so persistent that they even marched right down into the home. They followed him right into the home. So their faith had proven itself, at least as far as their persistence is concerned. They had believed him to be the Messiah, the son of David. They had prayed for his mercy. They recognized their own unworthiness, and they were willing to follow him and not quit. So finally, they, they passed the test. So finally, he turned their way and he said, Believe ye that I am able to do this? That's in verse 28. Now, I don't know where he put the emphasis. He could put it on, believe ye that I am able to do this. Or he could say, believe ye that I am able to do this. Or believe ye that I am able to do this. But however he put the emphasis, uh, he was asking them about their, could, could it have been that uh, he was purposely asking them this question, not because he didn't know their answer, but because he was trying to draw out, as he did with the woman with the bleeding, the issue of blood, he was trying to draw out from them a confession of their own faith, you know, a public confession of their faith in him, so that they could then bring glory to God by honoring the Son, and so that they could be a source of encouragement primarily to who? Who would only be in the house with him? Not the crowd, but the disciples. Remember, he's focusing on teaching and encouraging his disciples. So he wants to possibly, here I believe, draw out a confession from these two blind men. And their short little answer, two words, serves as a concise example to all of us that all that is necessary for, for salvation is something like this. Yea, Lord, you know, do you believe that I am able to save you and all we have to say if we meet it in our heart is yes lord in response to his question which was essentially do you believe that i'm able to heal you they said very simply yes lord yes meant that they did believe it was a strong affirmative that they did believe that he had both the power and the authority to do what they had asked of him 
And obviously, what had they asked of him? They didn't say it in so many words, but he knew they wanted their sight restored. So yes was a strong affirmative in their faith in his power and in his authority. And Lord, when they said, yea, Lord, Lord meant that they believed he was the Lord. Not only of their physical bodies, but also over their spirits and and their souls as well. Jesus had great compassion for those who suffered physically from the consequences of sin, didn't he? Don't we find him healing many, many people? I don't know that he really ever left anybody behind who was still handicapped or had leprosy. He had great compassion for those who were suffering the consequences of sin in their physical bodies. But by far, his greatest concern was for what? The soul. His greatest concern by far was for the soul because all all bodies will perish one day. His concern was for the eternal soul. As we have already studied quite a number of the Lord's miracles, we've gotten far enough into our Life of Christ study. Actually, we're about one-third of our way through. I was counting last night, about one-third. But we've studied a lot of his healings, and uh, we have found that many of those healings were performed without any mention of faith on the part of the one who was healed. Have you thought about that? For example, the raising of the dead widow's son of Nain. Do we hear anything at all about the faith of that dead son? No, we didn't really. We didn't hear that he had believed before he died. We didn't hear that he believed after he died. We didn't even hear that his mother believed before or after. I would think she'd believe after, but, <laughs> and he would too, but we didn't hear anything about their faith. Did we hear anything about Jairus' daughter's faith? Now, we heard about his faith, but we didn't hear about his daughter's faith. And what about the uh, centurion's servant? The centurion himself had great faith, but we don't know anything about the faith of his servant. And the man with the withered hand. And uh, many of the demoniacs that he is healed, who he has healed. We didn't hear, I mean, obviously they didn't have faith or they wouldn't be possessed by demons. And some of the lepers, we don't know that they had faith and on and on. Yet, although faith is not always involved in physical healing. Do you hear me? Although faith is not always involved in a physical healing, faith is always involved and demanded for what kind of healing? A spiritual healing. It's always demanded. Faith is always necessary for salvation. Jesus wanted these two blind men to confess him so that they might not only be healed physically, but more importantly, so that they would be healed spiritually. Even though they had already recognized him as the Messiah, the son of David, they had not confessed who he was personally in their own lives. Many people will declare that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, or they'll even say he's deity, or they'll even say that he is the Son of God, but they're still not saved. Did you know that? Many people can say that. Even the demons believe that. They know it. Because they're not saved because they are not they will not recognize or submit to him as Lord, to his lordship over their lives. It's one thing to say who he is in your head. It's quite another thing to surrender to him and, you know, to move that knowledge from the head to the heart. 
When these two blind men said, yes, Lord, or yea, Lord, they gave evidence of their faith in both his person and his power and their own place under him as Lord. They called him Lord. So they had a right knowledge. Yes, he was the Messiah. He was the son of David. They had a right attitude, which is also necessary for salvation. Remember when we studied the Beatitudes? Where do you start? With poverty of spirit. You have to be humble. You have to understand your spiritual bankruptcy. They had the right knowledge. They had the right attitude because they came in humility. And um, they were persistent. They also made the right request. They asked for what? Mercy. They asked for mercy. And very importantly, you could have all these things and go to the wrong source. (laughs) You could go to the church to save you. But they went to the right source. They went to the Lord. So Jesus reached over, and as he always seems to do, or he does so many times, what did he do? He touched their eyes. And we'll notice as we, we study more of his healing of blind men that he always doesn't do the same thing either. He works differently, and he, and he even heals differently. Sometimes he spits on the eyes. Sometimes he spits on the ground and makes a little mud pack and puts it on the eyes. Here, he just reached over and touched the eyes. And he said, according to your what? According to your faith, be it unto you. Verse 29. In the light of both their confession and the Lord's mention of their faith, we can safely conclude that more than just their physical eyes were opened by this miracle. They were also given true salvation and spiritual sight. And then he warned them, notice in verse 30, that they were instructed to what? He opened their eyes, but he wanted them to close their mouths. (laughs) He told them to tell no man what had happened. He was finished giving the Jews messianic signs. Now he's only working with individuals. And uh, he was doing his works, of course, before his disciples to strengthen their faith. Notice how he not only when he performed the miracle of raising Jairus' daughter, that he was in a house privately. But here, when he healed these two blind men, where, where do we find him? In a house, doing it privately. Um, and remember also he had told the Jairuses to tell no one. And now here again, he is privately in a home, probably just with his disciples and these two blind men, and he tells them to say nothing. All of his last three miracles were performed for those who came in faith to him with specific needs. Who were they? Uh, the, The woman with the issue of blood came to him, Jairus came to him, and these two blind men came to him. And these miracles, now, understand, were not to be used as signs to the unbelieving religious rulers of Israel who had already made up their minds about him. We see that repeated in this lesson this morning. They'd already made their conclusion that his works were done in the power of Satan. So, and what was the only sign they were going to get? The sign of Jonah, his own death and resurrection, his own You know, after three days in his resurrection. So Jesus sternly told these, it says, straightly charged, which is actually a Greek word that speaks of the fact that it was an urgent admonishment with scolding in it. And the commentators suggest that this means that these two men 
needed some improvement with regard to their obedience skills. So perhaps, I mean, you could take that next step. Maybe that's why they were blind. Maybe they hadn't been too good in obeying God before this, and this was some kind of divine punishment. But the word used when, he, when it says straightly charged, it was like a scolding kind of an emphasis when he says, don't tell anybody. He told these two former blind men to tell no one what had happened. Now, just when they walked out of the house, people would know, and their families would know, but he said, don't go out publicly broadcasting it. He was already being thronged about by many people who were crowding him for all kinds of wrong reasons. And these big crowds that followed him everywhere actually made it difficult for the needy to get to him. Remember the woman with the issue of blood, how difficult it had been for her to get to him because of the crowds. You know, they were all about him. And uh, it was hard for these two blind men. And, and Jairus, if he hadn't been so aggressive. So he didn't need to be, for the needy people, to be impeded. We find this if you read Mark one forty-five, how the crowds actually impeded him so he couldn't even go into certain cities. Because they were just there. And so many of them there were there for the wrong reason. They wanted to see a miracle worker. They wanted to be um, entertained. They wanted the thrills of seeing him work and his great miraculous powers. Too many people were not perceiving his miracles as proof of his messiahship and, uh, and his lordship, but they were merely watching them as a, a sideshow, which was fascinating to behold. And, of course, all of this attention was only further aggravating his enemies, wasn't it? And it wasn't yet his time to go to the cross. So he, he had reason for, for saying, telling these two men to be quiet. Christ does not give strange commands. He's God, and therefore God's wisdom is behind all of his commands. However, what do we find about these two men? Were they obedient to what the Lord said? No, they weren't. They, they, they uh, would not keep quiet. You know, part of me says, well, I can hardly blame them. It would be so exciting. The Lord had opened their eyes. We're not told they were born blind, but somewhere along the line, they, they became blind. But I, I just can't imagine being blind. It would be horrible. So I'm sure that they were very excited, and, and they just they didn't keep their mouths shut. But that's definite disobedience. So I don't want to say, well, I, I can't blame. I mean, in a way, I can't blame them, but that's my carnal nature. It's still more important to obey the Lord, isn't it? than our own well I, we don't read that Jairus did that Jairus's family did he told them not yeah they told yeah and you know what's funny is we are told to go out and tell we're given the great commission and yet what do we do most of the time we clamp our mouths shut we, you know. <laughs> But I did want to read because there are so many commentators who do excuse what they did here. I wanted to read this because I thought this this was good. Um, many folk think that telling about Christ to the multitudes condones any disobedience done to accomplish this work. It is 
the corrupt idea that the end justifies the means. But God is primarily concerned about obedience. We honor Christ most, not by taking our way of honoring him, but by absolute obedience. That was by Clarence McLaren. And that's true. We don't need to put our own reasoning in there. We just need to, to trust and obey, right? It says, he says, Scripture says, if a man love me, he will keep my words. John 14, 23. These two blind men had faith enough for healing, but not faith enough to follow the commands of conduct. A myriad of Christians are in the same boat. They have faith enough to be saved, but they do not exercise that faith in obeying commands about everyday living. And I thought, well, we all stand convicted of that because we certainly have been told to open our mouths and yet we do the opposite so many times. We clamp them shut. By the way, I went to see Kelly this morning at Hardy's and I walked into Hardy's and uh, everybody kind of turned around and looked at me because I am kind of sort of all dressed in white. And I went up to the counter and ordered a cup of coffee, and I said, is Kelly working this morning? Because I looked around and couldn't see her. And she, oh, yeah, she's here. They went back in the back and brought her out. You should have seen that woman's mouth drop. I said, hi, your guardian angel is here. <laughs> all in white. <laughs> and I don't know if you can see this, but my scarf says, uh, it's got Bibles all over it. And it says, I love Jesus all over it. <laughs> and she just stood, she never said a word. She just stood there like, and I said, I told you I wouldn't forget you. I have a gift for you. And I gave her a, um, a, a New Testament. And I opened up the back cover where it gives a plan of salvation. And all the other people in Hardy's were just standing there looking at me. Like, what is going on? So I have to go back and give all the rest of them Bibles too. But <laughs> it was, she was, she thanked me. I said, make sure you read that back page especially. It gives, you know, tells you how to get saved. And I hope you're still thinking about what I told you. And she was just like, I... And then when I went out to my car and I was driving away, I saw all of them looking at them. <laughs> oh, that was a fun experience. <laughs> anyway, keep praying for her. I, I, I do, I've been praying for her every day. Yeah, I know. I thought I wondered if anybody else had asked for Kelly at Hardy's. I hope we don't get her fired. That would be... <laughs> all right, I've lost my place. Let's see. Um, all right, they, they kept, they, uh, they talked when they shouldn't have, and we close our mouths when we should. All right, so no sooner were they out of the door of the house than they found a dumb man. <laughs> I thought about it. No sooner are we saved than we find a world full of dumb people, don't we? <laughs> all of a sudden, everybody's pretty dumb. Once you, get, you have your spiritual light, sight, you say, oh, wow, the world is full of dummies. But that's just my humor. They did find a dumb man, which uh, means that he couldn't speak, which also means that he probably couldn't hear. And in his case, why couldn't he speak or probably hear? It says he was possessed with a devil. Um, and some, some commentators suggest that he was probably a friend of these two blind men because he couldn't speak um, but he could see, he would serve as their eyes, and because the, he couldn't speak or hear, they would serve as his mouth and his ears. So it was kind of a, a good little companionship there. They helped one another, and that helps to explain how they could keep up with Jesus in the crowd 
and get to Peter's house. If this guy maybe had one blind man on each arm and was helping them um, get to Peter's house and follow the Lord. But anyway, as soon as they go out of the house, they get their friend. And um, what does the Lord do for him? He casts out the demon and we're told the man could immediately speak. But nothing is said about this man's faith. And nothing is said to indicate that he was saved, you know, spiritually. We find no profession of faith given by him. And therefore, we find he receives nothing more than physical healing. And we can only hope that his two blind friends, as long as they weren't going to keep their mouths shut, maybe they would tell him about Jesus and spiritual salvation. We can hope that he got saved. And we can hope that he wouldn't turn out like the man in the parable of the empty house, you know, cleansed of one demon, but then didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And so seven more demons might move in. We don't know what his outcome was, but we do know that temporarily, at least, he he had the demon exercised from him. We'll find out in heaven if he's there. All right, let's move now to Mark chapter 6. I'm cutting down quite a bit of the lesson, so we have plenty of time for sharing over at our luncheon. So let's look, and make sure you read the notes, because I am skipping a lot of stuff. Let's look at spiritual blindness remains. Mark 6, I'm going to read the first six verses. And when he went out from thence, in other words, he left Capernaum and came into his own country, which would speak of his hometown of Nazareth, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. That would be the synagogue he grew up in. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? This is the only place in Scripture that we know, it's the place we find out that Jesus, for an occupation, was a carpenter. This is it. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon. How many brothers did Jesus have? At least least he had four. Four brothers and are not his sisters here with us? He had at least how many sisters? Two, because it's given in the plural. And these words are adelphos and adelphas, which means not cousins. These were actual half-brothers and half-sisters, which, if you didn't know, refutes the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of of Mary. She did not remain a virgin. She She had four more sons and at least two daughters after Jesus was born. All right, and they were offended or they were scandalized. They stumbled over him, at him. Verse 4. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. I always say Jesus had to be southern because he called them his kin instead of his relatives. (laughs) Verse 5, And he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Yeah, folk is southern too. So I guess Mark was Southern. (laughs) Verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. 
All right, Jesus left the area of Capernaum to go one last time to his hometown of Nazareth where he had lived with Mary and Joseph uh, after he had returned from Egypt when he was about two, two years old. And, and he lived in Nazareth until the time he began his earthly ministry, which was around the age of 30. So he had lived in Nazareth for some 27, 28 years. Now, this is his second and his final visit to Nazareth that he made during his earthly ministry. Luke recorded that first visit. I don't think we've done, we probably talked about that two years ago, I guess. That was back in Luke chapter 4. If you remember the Lord then, again, like he did, did here, he went into the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. He opened up the scripture to Isaiah chapter 61, which was a messianic passage, and he shocked everybody by announcing that that messianic prophecy had been actually fulfilled in their very ears. So they knew, without a shadow of a doubt, that he was claiming to be the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of Israel. And this was just too much for these people who had known him since he had been a little boy. And they became enraged with what they perceived to be blasphemy. Was it blasphemy? No, because it was true. But what did they try to do to him? They were so mad. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to kill him. But, of course, he miraculously passed through the midst of them and went on his way. After such a first homecoming, it's just amazing that the Lord returned at all, isn't it? I'm surprised he came back after they tried to kill him. But he is the God of the second chance, isn't he? And remember who had just shortly been to see him. Remember the busy day? In the midst of the busy day, who had come to see him? His mother and his brothers and his sisters because they thought he was out of his out of his mind and they had come to see him and I wouldn't be surprised if he said well I can't visit with you now but I'll, I'll come home shortly and maybe that's why this is only uh, technically it could be only a day or two later from when they came to see him and Nazareth was about 20 miles from Capernaum so it would be a, about a one-day walk so it's just amazing, amazing that, he, uh, that he went back to Nazareth. But he is long-suffering, we all know that, and he is very, very patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there were a whole lot of folk and kinfolk in Nazareth who needed salvation. So along with his disciples, he went back to Nazareth, and no one immediately grabbed him this time to throw him off the cliff. They seem to be willing to let him stay around. And that's probably because this is maybe a year later from his first visit. Now he's become a known person. He's become a celebrity. They've heard a lot about him. And so they don't, they just leave him alone. And when the Sabbath day approached, he did what he had done the last time. He went to the synagogue and he taught. Verse 2 tells us, and we don't know what he taught. We're not told this time what he taught, but verse 2 tells us that the response was much the same as on his first teaching in that synagogue. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were incredulous, and they wondered where in the world he got such wisdom. Where did he get the training for such wisdom and the ability to do all the mighty works that obviously they had been hearing about? 
Now, we don't know, as I said, we do not know what Jesus taught on this particular Sabbath in Nazareth. But let's just think about some of the things that we have heard him teach already in our Life of Christ study. He's taught very wisely and very authoritatively on a lot of subjects. He's talked about salvation. Remember his conversation with Nicodemus? You know, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, He's talked about salvation to the woman at the well, at Jacob's well. He's talked about true worship, worshiping in spirit and in truth. He's talked about evangelism and sin many times over and morality. He's talked about divorce and adultery and murder and prayer, righteous prayer and non-righteous prayer and fasting and pride and hypocrisy and hatred and anger and forgiveness and love and jealousy and uh, almsgiving and true and false doctrine and true and false prophets. He's talked quite a bit about the Sabbath day. He's talked about the law and how he came to fulfill the law in every jot and tittle. He, can, he talked about discipleship. He talked about the unpardonable sin, about signs, repentance, poverty of spirit, purity of heart, mercy, persecution, hungering for righteousness, being merciful, dying to self, worry, <laughs> worry, worry, worry. We remember that lesson, don't we? Building up, laying up treasures in heaven. And many, many other subjects, including the Mystery Kingdom parables. Remember them? Don't forget the Mystery Kingdom parables and all we learned about the, new, the, the kingdom of heaven in, in the age that we live in and the parables that were given to us in Matthew chapter 13. He taught all, all about these subjects already. But the people of Nazareth knew that he had never received any formal training in their highly esteemed rabbinical school. So where did he get this wisdom? So they asked themselves, from whence hath this man these things? Can a man get wisdom other than in a a seminary? Does he have to have seminary training to get wisdom? No. Wisdom comes from God and from God's word. Furthermore, in addition, and of course he was God, so he had, a, he had a monopoly on wisdom. Furthermore, in addition to his great teaching, there were the numerous reports about all kinds of displays of his you know, supernatural power over all kinds of diseases, all kinds of incurable problems, casting out demons, uh, cleansing lepers, even now on two occasions raising the dead. And they had heard about, I mean, these towns are not that far away, that they did not hear about these things. So if nothing else was admitted, you would think that at least these people of Nazareth would recognize that Jesus had to be a prophet, a prophet of God. But just like the scribes and the Pharisees, they uh, failed to make the logical connection between his words and his works and his deity. Why? Why? Why do you think they failed in that? Probably because of familiarity. They were stumbling over their familiarity with his family. They had known his father, Joseph, who was also a carpenter and taught his son the carpentry trade. They knew his mother. They knew Mary. 
She was just a, another common woman in the city. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. And they were all sinners. They said, oh, we know his family. And they were all ordinary people. His family, just ordinary people. Um, and for over 30 years, they had, they had seen Jesus walk their streets and, and become a carpenter just like his father. They'd watched him grow up. Now, you'd think they would have noticed something special about him, but people don't. You know, they're really giving irrelevant issues here, excuses. These, they'll, uh, willful unbelief will always bring up irrelevant matters, and that's exactly what they're doing here when they say, well, we know his family. He was just too common for them to accept him, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So instead of uh, feeling proud and honored, that God had chosen his anointed one to grow up in their privileged little city. They were skeptical, and they were resentful, and perhaps even jealous. Don't you think that had something to do with it? Even with all the evidence available to prove that he was the true Messiah, they remained willfully unbelieving. I imagine the men of the town would all look at their own sons, you know, men, Fathers are proud of their own sons. And so they'd look at their sons and they'd say, surely God would not choose the carpenter's son instead of my son. It's with cynicism when they actually say, is not this the, the, the carpenter? He was just a carpenter. You know, I'm glad Jesus was a carpenter. My grandfather was a carpenter. He was just, he was, he was a, what we call what, um, blue collar worker wonderful he liked to work with his hands he liked to build things my dad my grandfather was a carpenter he didn't have any sons so he taught my mother the carpentry trade my mother was a carpenter she and my dad built our house from scratch they built it themselves the two of them and I don't know which one was more skilled but when they laid that last brick or hammered the last nail in that house was paid for that's neat isn't it (laughs) um but uh I'm glad he was a carpenter because I think about carpentry and how, you know, he, he built things for people. He built them furniture. He'd build, he would build um, uh, the, the yokes for the oxen and whatever other stools to sit on and beds to lay on. And then one day, you know, he closed up that shop when he was about 30 years of age. And he put the little clothes sign on there after he had helped his mother raise his brothers and sisters. He was 30. He was responsible after his father died for his family. And he did take care of them until they were all, the sisters were probably married and the brothers were old enough to make their own way. And he closed up his carpenter shop and you know what he then began to do? Build lives. I'm so glad that he was a carpenter and built my life. Aren't you glad that he's still building our lives? That he's still working on us? And together corporately he's building us into his church that we're living stones and he's the foundation. And aren't you glad that even right now he's still practicing his carpentry? carpentry skills in heaven, that he is preparing for each of us our own dwelling place in heaven. It's so perfect for Jesus to be a carpenter. But they said it sort of with scorn here. And then, too, think about the mothers. Hmm. Here's where you really get into the jealousy aspect. The mothers of uh, Nazareth would have thought about Mary and jealousy, jealousy would take over here. They would think, why would God pick her to be the Messiah, Messiah's mother, and not me? You know, every woman since Eve 
had always wanted, had the desire that they would be the mother of the promised Messiah. And so they asked the question, I think maybe this is mother speaking up. This is just my speculation. But in verse 3, is not this the son of Mary? And this is an insult because in that day, a man was identified by his father, the son of, of uh, Ben or the son of uh, Joseph. Should have been what they said, but in saying, is not this the son of Mary, they're really insulting him. To say he's the son of his mother was suggesting that he was illegitimate. They knew that little story about Mary. And uh, certainly they probably convinced themselves God would not choose a Messiah from one uh, who was, who was, uh, who had a, who had been born illegitimately. I didn't want to use the B word, so I'm trying to step around it. But I guess there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, they were accusing him of being a bastard, weren't they? Awful. And we know he wasn't. But anyway, it says they were offended at him. They, they stumbled over him. They were scandalized by him. Therefore, Jesus said to them, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. It had to be so sad for him so difficult for him but how true that statement is if you think about it even in his own own home and this is true with other people too even in his own home the lord's half brothers and half sisters did not believe in him until when we don't know about his sisters because nothing is said but we can imagine they did believe in him after his resurrection we know for sure his brothers believed in him after his resurrection. But this is true of people today. I think that jealousy is very much the culprit for this kind of attitude. People just don't want to give too much praise and too much honor to someone they know too well. Or someone else's son or daughter who was raised with their own children, perhaps even in the same church. It's far easier to honor someone who has come from somewhere else than it is to honor one who was raised with your children. That way you don't have to feel bad, you know, like you didn't do something right in the way you brought up your kids. And you don't have to feel bad, perhaps, when you you compare your kids or even yourself with that one in your graduating class or their graduating class who actually, you know, made something of themselves. There's just a lot of jealousy that we try to avoid, but it's still there. An expert, this is a good definition of an expert. An expert is, usu- is um, some ordinary person who comes from another town. <laughs> and the people of Nazareth had this problem. They were just too familiar with Jesus, and they stumbled over him. They had no way to explain him, so what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. People can put up all kinds of smoke screens. And they can give all kinds of excuses to cover their unwillingness to believe the demanding and the clear teachings of Jesus Christ and of his uh, fulfillment of Messianic scripture. Now, this is just characteristic of unbelief. It likes to disguise itself with all sorts of irrelevant issues. These people had fat hearts. Fat hearts. What is a fat heart? You know, well, you can read about it in Isaiah 6.10. I just think that's an interesting description. Oh, you fat-hearted person. <laughs> but it's in Isaiah 6.10. They had fat hearts. If they had truly done their homework, they would have discovered that Jesus did indeed fit 
every single messianic prophecy there was. But the real reason for their rejection was their self-will, their pride, their jealousy, their resentment, and their other petty feelings which filled their hearts, their fat hearts. These were their true barriers to salvation. Mark 6, 5 is one of the most amazing verses in the scripture, if you think about it. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. He did some physical healings, which don't require what? Faith. But he did no mighty works. What is a mighty work? To save somebody spiritually. Heal somebody spiritually. He did no mighty works there. This verse doesn't say that he wouldn't do any mighty works in Nazareth. It says he couldn't do any mighty works in Nazareth. This verse talks, this is what makes it amazing. It talks about the shackling, you know, binding, the shackling of omnipotence. Is it possible for God's hands to be tied? Is there something that can actually place a self-imposed limit on the power of God? What was it that made it so that Jesus was unable to do any mighty works in this place? He could not do any saving works, saving miracles in Nazareth because, I heard it down here, because of their unbelief, their hardened unbelief, which was so strong that it made him marvel. It's the second time, that, oh, there's only two times Jesus marvels in the scripture where it says he marveled over anything. The first time was he marveled over the great faith of the Roman centurion. And in contrast now, he's marveling over the great unbelief of his own hometown people. That is sad. He was bound by their spiritual blindness. They possessed binding blindness. It not only bound them, but it bound the omnipotent God. And that's why I've called this lesson binding blindness. Even though Jesus is sovereign God, he voluntarily placed a limitation on his own power. And that limitation was unbelief. Although it is not God's will that any man should perish, yet it remains true, doesn't it, that many do perish. Many go down that broad road to destruction. He desires to save all men, yet his omnipotence is shackled by man's unbelief. And that is serious truth. It tells us that God's power to do mighty things with us and within our local churches can be held back and can be limited by what? By our lack of faith. His work in you and me could be limited, too, by our own lack of faith. And in our churches and in the church universal, it could be limited because of lack of faith. God has no limit to what he wants to do and to what he can do through us and in us and in our churches. But our unbelief and our lack of faith can hold him from doing it. That's a self-imposed limitation. He has voluntarily connected his power to the, unbel- to the belief or to the unbelief of human beings. Now, he could have forced his way into every single one of us and made robots out of all of us. 
out of all mankind, right? And made us all obedient to him. But he voluntarily chose to give us free choice. He voluntarily decided that he would not force his way into a life where he was not wanted. We've seen this, right? He left the Gadarenes because they didn't want him there. He got in the way of their pig prophets. So what does he do with the Nazareth, the, the Nazarenes, people of Nazareth? They didn't want him there, so he doesn't force himself where he's not wanted. And so he left. The people of Nazareth limited the power of God. They shackled omnipotence with their unbelief. And the sad thing is that he never returned there again. He never returned there again. The vast majority of people do exactly the same thing as, as these people of Nazareth. In their willful spiritual blindness, they bind God's power to change their lives and to change their eternal destiny. So they remain forever blind and consequently they spend eternity in darkness. Isn't that sad? Sad, sad, sad. Let's pray. Father, I pray with all of my heart that every single one who has heard the witness of the scripture this past year as to the deity, the saviorhood, the lordship of Jesus Christ will put up no willful barriers to prevent the light of his truth to penetrate her heart and her mind and save her for all of eternity. Lord, now I just pray that you would go before us, that you would truly be lifted up and exalted in all that we have to say about you in our sharing time, which follows. For we do love you, Jesus, and we pray in your holy name. Amen.